Hello, Mainspring listeners. Thank you for tuning in once again. I'm Kristen. And I'm Jenna. And we have a great guest lined up for today's episode. We're going to be talking about ADHD and how to treat ADHD holistically. And we have Dr. Nicole Birkins on the show today, who is a leading holistic child psychologist. And she's dedicated the last 25 years towards providing parents with research-based strategies that really get to the root of children's anxiety, tension, mood, and behavioral challenges so they can really reach their highest potential. Let me share a little more about her bio. She She's built and runs a multidisciplinary evaluation and treatment clinic. She is also a best-selling author, a published researcher, an award-winning therapist, an in-demand speaker, international consultant, and experienced mom of four who is determined to show the world that with healthy foundations in place, every child and family can thrive. Wow. I know so many families who have been impacted by an ADHD diagnosis And many have shared all the bumpiness that goes along with that diagnosis because it's not just about focus and academic performance. It's also about, um, you know, mood dysregulation, impulsivity, and really how that can impact family and friendships. Oh, yeah. And also the ups and downs of titrating different medications and navigating the side effects. Yeah. Depending on how it presents in each child or, or person treating ADHD just doesn't have a a standard playbook. And I know that so many families find it challenging to find treatments that really work and 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 help. And I think that's why Dr. Birkins uh, is going to be so uh, helpful in shining a light further on this conversation, because by having a holistic approach, she's looking at it in a very layered way. It's about lifestyle. It's about nutrition. It's about sleep. It's about medication. And it's also about behavioral. And I just can't wait to get further into the conversation with her. Yeah, let's get to it. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers, a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parents Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Welcome, Dr. Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Can you share with us a little more about your story of how you came to be known as a leading holistic psychologist? Sure. My personal and professional stories are sort of woven together over the last 25 years or so. I actually started my career as a teacher. I got my bachelor's and my first master's in education, specifically special education, and started my career working with kids all the way from little ones at the preschool level, all the way through the high school level with a wide variety of learning challenges, developmental issues, behavioral and emotional kinds of um, issues. And I loved doing that work. Um, But at the same time, I had parents saying to me, you know, what you're doing with our kids during the day is great. Um, but we're really struggling at home. We don't have uh, good guidance. We don't know how to manage a lot of these really challenging things that we're dealing with. And that got me passionate about working with family systems and and more um, parent training kinds of things. So I went back and got my doctorate in clinical psychology, 
opened a private practice specializing in working with children and teens and young adults with a wide variety of neurodevelopmental kinds of things. So autism, ADHD, those types of things, as well as kids with uh, emotional and behavioral and mental health kinds of things. So anxiety, depression, um, bipolar disorder, um, you know, all those types of things. And uh, along the way, started having my own children. Uh, I have four kids. They're now 15 through 22, but they were little at the time. And I started seeing these patterns both in patients at the clinic as well as in a couple of my own kids of physical health kinds of things and then also mental health, brain-based, developmental kinds of things. Um, so a lot of the kids coming into my practice they were there because they were having symptoms of ADHD or they were on the autism spectrum or they were having explosive behaviors or things like that. But also as I delved into their history, the vast majority of them had a long history of things like chronic constipation, recurrent ear infections, uh, strep throat, not sleeping well ever, very picky eating, um, digestive issues, eczema, asthma, the whole gamut. And I started seeing that in a couple of my own personal kids too, and started getting curious about the connections between um, physical health and mental health and child development. And when I delved into the research literature, I was really surprised to find a pretty large body of literature showing those connections. And I'd now gone to a lot of schooling. Um, I had a couple of master's degrees, a doctorate, had been in the world of child development and education, as well as psychology and mental health, and nobody had really talked about these things. And that got right. me passionate about really researching those connections, um, went back and got another master's degree in nutrition and integrative health in order to really be able to weave that into the work that I do with patients and their families. Um, and so now today, I really practice a holistic uh, integrative model of care where I use my knowledge and experience in child development and education as well as in psychology because there are great tools there, but also weaving in the um, integrative nutrition pieces, the lifestyle pieces um, for the entire family, really. And that's how we get much better results for kids is when we look at them holistically as an entire person, all the facets of them, not just their symptoms and their you know, label that we give them, um, and then provide treatment in a way that really works on, on all of those core issues. Um, and so that's really what I do today, both in my clinical work, uh, as well as in the teaching that I do, my online work, those kinds of things. Great. Fantastic. So ADHD, um, spectrum disorders, and, and learning disorders seem to be on the rise. And can mm -hmm. you speak to why it seems to be so much more prevalent now than when we were children? You know, it's clear that they're on the rise, whether we look at the data or we just um, listen anecdotally to teachers, for example, who have been in the field for 25 or more years who will say definitively that their classrooms today are filled with children who are very different developmentally, socially, um, neurologically than kids that they were teaching, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago. And the data supports that. We've seen all of these conditions in the realm of neurodevelopmental kinds of issues, as well as mental health issues on the rise. And that was before the pandemic. And certainly that has gotten um, even greater in terms of exponential growth for things like anxiety, depression, those types of things, you know, since the pandemic. 
But, you know, we have seen the rates of autism spectrum disorder rise exponentially Mm -hmm. over the last 25 years. ADHD, same thing. Learning disabilities, um, mood disorders, anxiety, any type of behavioral diagnosis, all of these things are rising. And there seem to be several factors in play. One is certainly that there is some element of genetic predisposition for some of these things. I think genetics gets way overplayed and the research supports that it gets way overplayed. Um, Genetics is a small component. You can have a genetic predisposition to, let's say, something like ADHD or autism or schizophrenia or, um, you know, anxiety or something like that. But what we know is that it's environmental triggers that really cause the genetic predisposition to be expressed. And unfortunately, we have way more environmental triggers today um, than we had uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or before that. And so what the research points to in terms of what are some of the things environmentally going on, um, you know, literally from an environmental standpoint, we have much more toxic air, toxic water. Um, Our food supply is less nutrient dense and more filled with toxins than ever before in history. But when we think about it, you know, the environment is things like our relationships, our culture, the dynamics of what's going on in our world. We have higher stress levels in adults and children than ever before. We have a mismatch developmentally between what traditional schools um, in the U.S. are expecting of children and what is developmentally appropriate for Mm -hmm. their brain development, for their developmental level. We have had the infusion of 24-7 internet connectedness, screen time, social media placed into the lives of kids over the last 15 or so years. So all of these pieces are playing a role in what we're seeing with the exponential increase in these things. It's not any one thing, but it's this sort of combination of lots of pieces. Um, Kids not sleeping as well, um, kids having more dysfunctional relationships, higher stress, more screen time, more sedentary, you know, dysfunctional school environments, all of these things that really um, seems to be leading to a significant increase in symptoms for lots of kids. Hmm. You know, that makes me think that some of that, as parents, we can actually mm-hmm. do more about, right? We have more yeah. control. But then when I think of toxic levels in water system mm-hmm. or nutrient-dense foods, mm-hmm. I get a little, I feel a little disempowered. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, well, it, it, knowledge is power. And yes, there are lots of things that we as parents can do. And even, um, especially from a food standpoint, being intentional about understanding that what you feed your kids matters and to look at nutrient density. Most kids in America are eating a diet very high in what we call ultra-processed foods, which have a lot of chemicals, a lot of sugar, and very low nutrient levels. So there's a big difference between feeding your child a packet of fruit snacks, for example, and feeding them an actual orange or an apple. From a nutrient Mm -hmm. density standpoint, that kind of stuff matters. So we actually do have a lot of control. There, of course, are big systemic changes that need to happen in agriculture in this country, in our food production system, in all of that, that if we could get those changes made would dramatically change the trajectory of health and development for kids. We don't have individual control over those things. But we do have control on a micro level for ourselves and for our own families of what we're purchasing, being more informed consumers, 
um, you know, looking at the nutrient density of things, even just basic things like drinking more water, less soda Mm -hmm. and juice. Like we've got things that we absolutely can control that research shows makes a significant difference in how kids' brains develop and how they function. Mm-hmm. Wow. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in particular seems to be increasing. And in fact, when we spoke last, Dr. Birkins, you you, sh- you had shared to me um, a statistic that 12% of the student population now has this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I know Dr. Daniel Amen's work kind of broke down ADD into several different categories. How do you and your practice go about assessing ADHD or ADD? What are some of the markers to look for? Yeah, I mean, Dan Amen has his, um, you know, seven categories. That's his conceptualization of it. That's great. I think that's helpful for some people. I mean, in general, with anything in clinical psychology, Um, We've got a big manual called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual with lots of different possible diagnoses, and each has a checklist of symptoms. Um, And so, you know, for ADHD, what we're looking at are things like um, significant levels of inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, poor executive function across all environments over an extended period of time. So, you know, clinically, okay, we can do... Um, observation. We can get input from teachers. There are standardized checklists, um, you know, ways that clinically we can say, okay, does this child check the boxes of these symptoms and therefore do they qualify for this label? Um, I'm somewhat of a, a unique clinical psychologist in that I care very little about labels and symptom checklists. Um, in fact, from a standpoint of diagnosis, Um, I will give a diagnosis if a parent or an individual really wants one, if that's something that's important to them to have a label, or if it's necessary for getting school supports, insurance reimbursement, access to community services, I'm fine with that. But there are a lot of limits to that standard clinical mental health model of what are we seeing? Okay, here's the checklist of symptoms and here's your label. Because actually, the label of ADHD tells us nothing about what's going on that's actually causing or contributing to those symptoms. So yes. I can have 10 eight-year-olds who come into my clinic, all of whom meet the criteria. Oh, yep. Okay. We did some assessment, some observation, got some checklists. Yep. Tick the boxes. Okay. They all get a diagnosis of ADHD. And all 10 of them may have very different underlying contributing factors that are causing those symptoms. So from a treatment and intervention standpoint, we better get really invested in understanding what is going on for that kid in order to put a plan in place that's going to alleviate or support or resolve the symptoms. And that's not how the standard mental health system um, operates today. It's, well, you have ADHD, the standard courses of treatment are a stimulant medication and go get some behavioral therapy. Well, okay, that may or may not be helpful for however many you know percentage of kids. But if you have a child who is exhibiting significant levels of impulsivity and hyperactivity because they are having major uh, sensitivities to food that they're eating, for example, and it's causing this whole histamine reaction in their body that is creating excessive energy and impulsivity. Well, 
all the stimulant medication and the behavior management strategies in the world are not going to resolve that for that kid. And that's just one example. Mm -hmm. So to me, the labels are helpful only from the standpoint of it's how you access things, you know, um, in the world of education and in the world of healthcare. But from the standpoint of what do we actually do to support improvement in children and in parents and in families? Uh, I'm not that invested in labels. I'm more interested in understanding who that individual child is and what's going on for them. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because you could also be looking at those eight kids and some of them have trauma. Some of them have severe anxiety and a lot of those symptoms cross-reference. So that's a great point. Anxiety is a great example of that. There's a lot of misdiagnosis, um, in my opinion, and, and there's research to back that up. Um, a lot of misdiagnosis, particularly in the realm of ADD and ADHD, because children can look inattentive and hyperactive for so many different reasons. Anxiety is an excellent example. A child can be really inattentive, seem really daydreaming, seem really like they're not getting their work done, or even seem very impulsive and overactive and hyperactive. And the assumption is, well, that's ADHD, when in fact, anxiety in children manifests exactly the same way. And so you're absolutely right that there's really a need to be working with a practitioner who understands how these things present. Trauma can present that way. Pain can present Mm -hmm. that way in children, especially younger children or children with limited verbal communication capacities. And so when we just look at the surface and say, well, this is inattention, this is hyperactivity, this is impulsivity, this is ADHD, we really miss the bow in teasing out the nuances of what's going on for most kids. Mm-hmm. So I understand, you know, traditional ADHD treatment is behavior modification yeah. and medication, but what, sure. can you talk a little bit about the holistic approach that you might use for, for treating ADHD? Yeah. I mean, so stimulant medication can be helpful for some kids. It certainly is not helpful for all kids. And for Mm -hmm. some kids can create a lot of additional problems um, because of side effects and those types of things. Um, So I'm not opposed to it. I just have realized, and the research shows this as well over the years, that stimulant medication is not the silver bullet for the vast majority of kids. It can be helpful Mm -hmm. for some, um, but certainly doesn't resolve the issues for most. Um, And behavior strategies and supports can also be a helpful part of the the picture. But the other pieces that we need to be looking at um, from a physiological standpoint, we want to really be looking at child's nutrient level um, levels across the board, um, particularly if any child who's exhibiting symptoms of ADHD at a minimum should be getting an iron panel done to look Mm -hmm. at their iron levels because the research is so clear that even suboptimal levels of iron, not even frank anemia, but just suboptimal levels of iron in children, guess how they present as very ADHD. They also Mm -hmm. don't sleep well. They're very hyperactive. Their mood is very labile. They have difficulty regulating themselves. So at a minimum, we should be looking at some of those basic kinds of things from a nutrient level. We also know that blood sugar regulation is really important for these kids. So making sure that they're eating a more nutrient-dense diet, making sure that we are reducing the amounts of added sugars, that they're adequately hydrated, all of these things, while they may not make the ADHD symptoms completely go away, 
They are absolutely valuable as a part of improving symptoms and helping kids get more regulated and and hold on to the skills that they're learning in their behavioral treatment in school and those kinds of things. Um, The other specific nutrient that I'll mention that's really important is omega-3 fatty acids and quite a lot of research on that at this point that many, many, many kids who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD or a related disorder have suboptimal levels of omega-3 fatty acids, which are a particular type of fatty acid that is necessary for the cell membranes of uh, brain cells that are necessary for the communication between cells in the brain. So really important for all of us and has a lot of implications, not only for ADHD, but for mood disorders, behavioral dysregulation, those kinds of things. What we see in kids with ADHD is many of them have suboptimal levels, but even those who come back on testing to have adequate amounts seem to benefit from additional supplementation of that. And something to note here, because often when we talk about this realm of holistic or integrative treatment, things get very polarized in people's minds of, well, Mm -hmm. you're either for meds or against meds, or you're either doing meds or you're not. And and that is not the way to be thinking about it. And omega-3 fatty acids are a great example. We have studies showing that for kids who are on stimulant medications, when we also optimize their omega-3 fatty acid levels and supplement with that, guess what? their stimulant medications work even better and we're able to get better results on lower levels of the medication, which of course is beneficial for reducing side effects. So these types of strategies dovetail really nicely. And unfortunately, a lot of practitioners as well as parents aren't aware that we can use targeted nutrients in combination with medications. By the way, the same is true for a lot of the antidepressant, anti-anxiety drugs. When we're optimizing Uh, nutrient levels and using supportive targeted nutrients in combination with those medications, the research shows the medications are more effective at lower doses. So these can be combined kinds of things. The other things that we look at in the holistic realm in terms of treatment for ADHD are improving lifestyle factors, making Mm -hmm. sure that kids are not overly sedentary, that Mm -hmm. they are moving regularly throughout the day preferably outdoors some of the time, because there's great benefit for all kids, especially kids with neurodevelopmental issues, to getting fresh air, sunlight, time in nature. That has its own regulating um, you know, factors to it. Screen time is a big one. Um, and there isn't a hard and fast rule about this, but the vast majority of kids with ADHD Um, tend to have more sensitive brains when it comes Mm. to things like um, screen time. And so being aware of what works for your child, what doesn't, and, um, you know, helping to set up a system and a structure where they are using screens in a way that's not detrimental to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So those those are some of the pieces along with working with parents to understand what's going on brain-wise with their child and how to communicate and um, you know, set routines and do things in the home that are going to be more supportive for their child. And, and what do you think about accommodations? I mean, I know that's a hot topic and um, with kids with ADHD, um, you know, what do you think is important for parents to look into and ask their schools when it comes to ADHD accommodations? Oh, sure. Accommodations in the school setting. Yeah. I mean, that really depends on, um, on the child right? Some kids benefit from a lot of not only accommodations, but even an IEP with modifications um, in the school environment. But I think in general, 
um, I, I highly encourage and, and work with families to collaborate with schools, with teachers, with administrators, um, to maximize the opportunities for success for kids. Um, lots of these kids have amazing strengths um, that are not um, utilized in traditional school environments, right? Um, and so looking at how you can collaborate with the school staff to make accommodations, everything from minor things like seating accommodations. Some kids do better, you know, standing in the back of the room than sitting in a desk all day. Um, some kids need to have what I call a pace space, tape off a, you know, three foot strip um, in the back of the classroom where they can walk during lectures and things like that, but keeping it in a structured space. Some kids benefit from fidgets. Some kids need breaks. Some kids need uh, modified or reduced assignments or to be able to do things verbally instead of writing it. All of these things are options, um, you know, if, if kids with ADHD are needing them. And so, you know, I encourage that collaboration and that communication on parents' part. Sometimes you need to be the squeaky wheel. You know, school systems are not set up to meet the needs of kids outside that very narrow range of the bell curve, sort of that middle um, ground, and kids on both sides of that get left out. And so parents often need to be the squeaky wheel and express their concerns firmly but politely, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and work together to make a plan. And the reality is that sometimes parents really need to, if they're able to look at different kinds of school arrangements. Sometimes traditional school environments are just not going to be a supportive or appropriate fit. And so I've had families over the years who have found more benefit from everything from private school environments to alternative arrangements, to online, to homeschool, to unschool, um, to a whole range of things. And again, it really depends on the child. Um, but I see a lot of parents burn themselves out year after year, banging their head against the wall of trying to get their kid to succeed in a traditional environment that just isn't going to be a fit for them. So I think parents staying open to the idea of who is this child, what's going to best serve them, and when possible, uh, you know, to look at flexible options for that. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go back to the nutrition piece, and I'm wondering if I already have sure. my answer, but I'd love to hear from you that correlation between kids with ADD and, and then the preference towards limited food preferences. Mm -hmm. Is, yeah. Can you explain that a little more for our audience? Yeah. Very common for what we sort of call picky eating um, or even uh, clinical feeding disorders to uh, overlap with neurodevelopmental issues, ADHD, autism, you know, being the ones that get talked about the most. And there's several things going on there. First of all, we know that kids with ADHD tend to have more what we call sensory processing issues. Their brain struggles a bit more to take in and make sense of the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the smells, the feels of the environment around them. And so when you think about food, food is a very sensory experience. We have the sight, how it looks. We have the smells, we have the taste, we have the texture. And it's a very intimate thing to put something in your mouth, move that around, chew it, experience all the sensation of that in your brain. Your brain has to make sense of that and then swallow it. And when that process works the way it's supposed to, we take it for granted and we don't think about it. But when you have a child with sensory sensitivities, 
maybe it's the, you know, oh, I can't stand the smell of that. And you're going, what? I don't even notice it, right? Or they're very texture sensitive or whatever it might be. Um, that becomes a big issue and they can get very limited then, um, you know, in, in how they're approaching foods. So the sensory processing piece is one component of it for these kids. I think also for a lot of these kids, whether they have a primary diagnosis of anxiety or not, inherently these kids tend to be a lot more anxious because when your brain is struggling to take in and make sense of the world around you, which all of these neurodevelopmental issues, ADHD included, are all processing disorders in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. The world is moving at a pace and coming at them um, in a way that is difficult for them to quickly and efficiently take in and make sense of. And when that's your experience of being in the world, of course you feel more anxious. Things are, you know, more uncertain. You're feeling more hesitant. You're feeling more, you know, on edge. And what do we as human beings do when we start to feel anxious or uncertain? Well, we look for what we can control because control is the antidote to feeling out of control, to feeling uncertain, to feeling anxious. So we look to where we can control. And this is a piece of what's going on with lots of things with kids with ADHD, um, but particularly around the food issue. If I'm feeling really uncertain, really tense, really on edge, really anxious, controlling what's in my immediate environment, controlling what I'm eating, narrowing that and only sticking to things that are certain that I, you know, know exactly how they're going to taste, smell and feel, um, that reduces my anxiety. Mm -hmm. So this is why a lot of these kids are eating highly processed diets in very limited. So it's not uncommon for me to see a child who will eat like McDonald's French fries, goldfish crackers, a certain type of chicken nugget, maybe a certain mm -hmm. type of, you know, yogurt pouch or whatever. Um, and it's because those foods are always exactly the same. Right. A goldfish cracker out of that bag is going to be the same every time. And it doesn't raise my anxiety level. My brain and my sensory system know exactly what to expect. Unlike, a, you know, a bowl of blueberries where one might be firm, one might be a little mushy, this, you know, one mm -hmm. batch might taste sweet, you know, I don't know what to expect. And when I'm already on edge and feeling just sort of overwhelmed by the world in general, you know, delving into that now with food just puts another layer to it. And so that's another significant component that's going on um, for a lot of these kids. Is that mm -hmm. helpful? You're just so articulate, yeah. Dr. Briggins. I so appreciate <laughs> how you're Good. explaining everything. It's so clear. Yes. That makes Good. a lot of sense. I've never thought of it like that. A, a goldfish mm -hmm. is always a goldfish. That's right. Very and, true. That's right. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is why my son only wants to eat hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. You that's know, right. like he yeah. has just like, mm -hmm. that's his go-to. Yeah. And goldfish. Right. I'm like, man, I've got some, I have some fixing yep. to do in our kitchen for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and where you start with that then, because I'm sure a lot of parents are listening are like, oh my gosh, what do I do about that? Is you start with very small changes because mm -hmm. you now understand what the issue is, right? The right. issue is uncertainty management. The issue is this is what feels safe to me. So you don't go from a burger to, you know, uh, grilled salmon, right? <laughs> you go from the burger that the kids used to, to like, okay, let's cut this in different ways. Okay, let's maybe try a different brand of bun. 
okay, let's try, you know, maybe putting this kind of cheese on it. Let's see, can you come up with Mm -hmm. a couple of ways that you could change this? Um, Goldfish crackers, you know, maybe we try a different brand. Mm -hmm. Maybe we see what happens, you know, can we make our own? What happens if we crush them? You know, does it taste the same? We start experimenting with it and depending on the age, getting them involved in understanding what's happening and just making some changes to bridge to new things. Because what so often happens, and this is very well-intentioned by parents, and this doesn't just apply to food, this applies to so many things. We try to get kids to branch out and we make a leap that's far too big for them. And then they get more anxious and overwhelmed and then they shut down and they lash out and they become even more rigid and we become even more frustrated. So whether it's your child who only wants to wear the same three things all the time or, you know, refuses to change the plan for whatever or gets very upset with transitions or only wants to drink out of this cup or only wants to eat this thing or whatever it is, you say, okay, I can empathize with what's happening here from the standpoint of this is an overwhelmed brain that is seeking to control to reduce the overwhelm. How can I reduce the amount that I'm trying to stretch them here so that I'm still stretching them a little bit? We're not going to just eat the same two things all the time. I'm going to stretch you, but I'm going to stretch you without breaking you, right? Mm. It's sort of like I'm going to stretch one piece here to get you comfortable with that And then we'll stretch to the next piece because it's just like a rubber band. If you try to pull it too hard, too fast, it's going to snap, right? And we've all had those experiences with our kids. So it's backing up and saying, I need to stretch you a little bit here. I need to get you outside your comfort zone, but not so much that it's overwhelming. And then that's how we start to help them make these changes and get more comfortable with different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like how do we stretch our kids into new developmental stages too and those, right. those little challenges that you're talking about. In fact, yeah, do you have some right. thoughts on that as well? So, for instance, like when our kids are little, we may have to take the lead in making sure that the backpack is is packed. Right. You know, what do you when do you let your child be completely in charge of these things? Um, and if they make a mistake, it's it's their learning lesson. I think you do it a little bit at a time. You know, you go from, and and this is tough as a parent, and and I've been there um, because we get in our routines too of how to make life work. And suddenly we wake up one day and we go, oh my gosh, my kid's 12 and doesn't like take care of his own backpack. (laughs) Well, I think with an ADHD diagnosis, sometimes it's harder Mm because my kids have ADHD. And so I'm thinking when it comes to, I want them to make their lunches, but I'm like, crap, are they going to choose yep. like the right. density right. rich foods that right. I've laid out right. that this is a good right. idea, guys, and you're sneaking this in there now mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. That's right. So we look <laughs> at structuring that and we look at, especially with kids with ADHD or any other type of neurodevelopmental issue, we look at it as a process, right? With a neurotypical kid, you maybe could just go, okay, look, I'm, you know, I woke up today realizing I've been packing your lunch every day, you know, for eight years. It's time for you to do that. I'm going to have you watch me twice and now you take it over, right? Okay. For a kid with ADHD or on the spectrum or any other type of issue, you're going to look at it more as a process, more like, you know what? Okay. It is, um, you know, February now. By the time September, at the start of the new school year, I want to have this kid at a point where he's going to be able to be independent with packing his lunch. So let me look at everything I'm doing for that process now and what he's doing. And if I'm doing 100% of it and he's doing 0%, 
how do I look at now over the next several months starting to build some steps there? So, okay, you're going to come do it with me. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to do parts of it. You're going to do parts of it. You know, this is how we're going to do it. And then, okay, now you know how to make the sandwich. So you make the sandwich. I'll put the rest of it. Hey, guess what? Here's a checklist. Here are the things, you know, here are the choices you have in each category. You need to pick one from each category. That goes in there. Let me know when you're done. I'm going to set the timer so that we're not wandering around for 25 minutes, you right. know, not yes. getting our lunch made. I'm going to set the timer. And, you know, here's, here's the visual timer. I'm going to set the timer for 10 minutes. I'm going to go, you know, brush my teeth, do whatever. And then I'm going to come back and check and let's see what you have done. And so you start to hand over the pieces of this process. And then when they get successful with that, you hand over another piece. And that's really how you make these things happen. Um, but realizing that it's going to be a process and setting a realistic expectation for yourself and them of how long it might take. Mm-hmm. Like I feel a, re- a, a relief right now and anxiety knowing that on what you just shared, I could have six months to complete that. That yeah, feels doable. That's right. Not, that, not right? overnight. Well, yeah, because right. my expectation would be. So, here's what's so important about that. Because we tend to look at it as, I tried to have him do it and he didn't do it. Now I have to do it. We tend to not give these kids the opportunity to develop the skills. Either parents continue doing everything because they don't, they assume their kid can't, or they try to get them to do it and give up way too quickly because the expectation isn't right and then keep doing it. And guess what happens? These are the kids then that end up in my office at 19 or 20 bottomed out with depression, anxiety, all of these things after graduating, having the rug of life pulled out from under them, sent off to college, somehow supposed to figure this out after everybody's been doing everything for them. And now we have a real problem, right? And so I love you asking that question and thinking about that because these are absolutely the skills that we need to be working on and teaching our kids to do while they're still living with us at home. And so Mm -hmm. my thing is, I don't care if it takes the entire freshman and sophomore year of high school to learn how to independently manage the lunchbox and the backpack. The important thing is that they develop the skills to do it. I don't Mm -hmm. care if it takes all of middle school to get a kid proficient with managing their laundry situation. What matters is that they learn to do it. And in learning to do it, beyond the skill itself, what we teach these kids is that they're competent, that they're Mm -hmm. capable, that they are able to manage these things. And giving them that gift is almost the most important thing we can do is sending them off into whatever's next for them beyond high school, beyond living in our homes all the time with us, with the internalized sense that I may have some struggles, but I am inherently a capable person. I am competent. I am a problem solver. And that's really, really what we want to be embedding in them. Yeah, that's so good. Dr. Berkins, I'd love to talk a little bit about parental self-care because I think that's sure. such an important part of this. And, yeah. you know, what can parents do to manage their triggers and, and expectations and then, you know, ensure that they are getting the adequate adequate self-care that they need? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think self-care is such a tricky thing for all of us as parents, right? And especially when you have a kid with some additional needs and challenges. Um, Mm -hmm. Our focus so much, uh, especially as moms, tends to be on our kids, our kids, our kids, our kids, and not on us. And it's easy to let our cup just empty out. And then, um, then we end up engaging with our kids in ways that we don't feel so good about, right? And that aren't so helpful. Um, So I think one of the first things that I try to do for parents is give them a helpful framework for understanding um, what type of process they're in here, because this is very much a marathon and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us parent in general, but especially if we have a kid with some challenges with ADHD, we tend to parent as if we're in a sprint and we are not. We are in a marathon. And just reframing that and understanding that this is going to take longer and we need to pace ourselves. For a lot of us with kids with these types of issues, we're not on the birth to 18 plan. We're on the birth to 21 plan, the birth to 25 plan, maybe even the birth to 30 plan with helping our kids be to the point where they're able to independently launch into their life. And while some parents might say, well, that's really depressing, I actually think that it's really empowering and really a component of the self-care piece for ourselves. Because part of what burns us out is unrealistic expectations. Mm, Yes. And for ourselves and for our kids. And so Mm -hmm. when we can frame this as a wonderful, amazing human being with a very unique and powerful brain that is filled with lots of strengths, but also some very real weaknesses and challenges, that helps us understand that, okay, we need to just breathe and slow down and lean into this and recognize that we are running a marathon here and pace ourselves accordingly. Whether that is with school expectations And the homework that comes along with it, whether that is with what we're expecting of our kids in the home. And I'm big on having high expectations, but reasonable expectations. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big piece of self-care. And then recognizing that, of course, all of our kids are going to trigger us. There is inherently um, something very triggering about having children. They they bring out all of our own issues. You want the best personal development course you will ever take is being a parent. Um, And, you know, right. And so to realize that, yeah, they're going to trigger us. We're going to have bad moments. We're going to have bad days. All of our stuff is going to come up. We're going to have a lot of uncomfortable feelings about that. And that really that is our thing. That is not our kids. That is us. And that we need to learn how to take care of ourselves, whether that means going to our own therapy regularly Mm -hmm whether that means learning some coping skills like deep breathing, like some meditation, um, that absolutely should mean for all of us focusing and prioritizing our own health and wellness. What are we eating? How are we sleeping? What are our adult relationships like? Are we getting movement? Um, What's our stress level? It means looking at all of that. And so often it's easy to pin that stuff on kids. Well, I'm so stressed out because my kids are tough, right? This kid with ADHD and, you know, "Ah, I can't take care of myself. And actually that's where you have to start because that's the only thing you can control. Mm -hmm. You actually can't control anything that's going on with your child as much as we like to think we can. You cannot ever control another person. You can only control yourself. So good parenting 
And being a great parent and being a great parent to a kid with ADHD or related issue means being willing to look at yourself and learn how to manage yourself first. And when you can do that, that really goes a long way to making things better and easier, um, not only for your kids, but for your entire family. Very well said. That resonates for sure. This has been Good. such a fabulous conversation today, Dr. Brookins. Thank yes. you so much. I, I, how can people find you? Tell us what you're up to. Sure. So um, people can go to my website, drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. Lots of articles, videos, um, handouts, lots of free resources there for people. Um, I also have a podcast called The Better Behavior Show. We do um, two episodes weekly on all of these kinds of topics and more. So that's also on my website. or You can find it on your favorite podcast player. Um, my book about these things, Life Will Get Better. Um, that's a book written for parents that you can find on Amazon uh, you know, and wherever um, books are sold. Uh, and then on social media, I tend to hang out most on Instagram and a little bit on Facebook, but Instagram is really where I've got a um, wonderful community of parents and professionals. Um, and so you know, try to post regularly uh, and keep people supported and empower people with information. So love to have people join me any of those places. Oh, well, this Thank has been so much. just such a remarkable conversation. Thank you so much for just, um, you know what? Thank you so much for taking the time to educate yourself mm-hmm. and sharing that with the bigger community. I just appreciate your giftings and how intentional you have been with bringing in education, nutrition, integrative health, and psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really are a, such a premier professional in the field. So thank you so much. Thank you for those very kind words, and thanks for having me today. Take care. I learned so much from Dr. Birkin. She's just a wealth of knowledge, and she really kind of demystified ADD and ADHD for me and in the treatments out there. I had no idea, actually, about iron supplementation. Mm-hmm. That was new information for me, and I, I really want to do further research on that mm-hmm. for my own family, and I'm just going to get some really high quality omega-3s now after this conversation and it's on the kitchen table for everybody to be taking. Yeah. And I think to her point, just really making sure the quality and the quantity that you're giving them is accurate. Which would be worth going to see a professional to make sure that you're, you're getting a therapeutic dosage. Definitely. Well, for more information on and Dr. Nicole and resources related to our podcast today on ADHD, please visit our show notes. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We're so grateful for our listeners and really hope that you guys get something out of each episode. And if you do, please share it with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Bye. Bye.